Hey guys, and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you for joining your hosts, Tierra and Jack Waters now, episode number 87. So today we have a very special guest interview today. We have gastroenterologist Dr. Graham Radford-Smith on the episode. So we'll be discussing a range of topics related to gut health, the microbiome, IBS, IBD, and what each of those are as well. And really, we really want to make the most of Graham's clinical knowledge compared to our more nutritional-based knowledge. So without further ado, Graham, thank you for coming on the episode today. Thank you. Yeah, so Graham, thank you so much for joining us today. And, you know, before we get stuck into the questions, can you just let the listeners know, you know, like, what made you so passionate about this area of gastroenterology and how did you get to where you are today with your career? Okay, well, firstly, thanks both of you for uh, inviting me onto this podcast. I've been following you guys for the last 12 to 18 months and you've uh, you've had some great shows and some great guests. I think it's a, a fantastic initiative. So my uh, my journey really, I suppose, started in the UK when I um, uh, was fortunate enough in uh, being able to do a PhD with one of my uh, mentors, a guy called Derek Jewell, who was uh, uh, an expert and a world leader in uh, studying inflammatory bowel disease and managing patients with Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Um, one of the things that struck me was the fact that these disorders were uh, remained uh, really unknown in terms of what drove uh, the development of these disorders, the fact that they affected a predominantly young population, um, and uh, treatment was still relatively uh, uh, simplistic at that stage. And certainly diet wasn't something that was considered a major avenue for treatment. Um, so that's how I got involved in uh, in gut health research initially. And um, um, it was during that period that um, I made a decision to move to Australia um, and I've been in Brisbane since 1990, late 1994. Um, since being in Australia, I've been very fortunate in uh, having an opportunity to develop a program for people with inflammatory bowel disease, which was, uh, which has been based at the Royal Brisbane Hospital in in, in the Brisbane CBD. Um, and uh, the hospital has been incredibly supportive of uh, um, some of the strategies that uh, I've uh, endeavoured to employ to help people with these disorders and a range of other gut health issues. Uh, most recently, um, I was looking for a new challenge um, and decided to develop uh, my own program together with uh, um, a close colleague, um, uh, Goss Shepherds, and that program is called Integrated Health, and that kicked off uh, last October 2019, and um, uh, we've ridden through a, quite an interesting period, as I'm sure everyone knows, over the last six to nine months, um, but uh, we, we've survived that, and uh, we're really excited about what we can offer uh, a range of clients uh, in terms of uh, uh, integrated gut health, which is uh, what we describe as a, a more holistic approach to people's gut health and optimization of, of their gut health. Awesome. Yeah, that's that's really great. Um, we'll sure we'll dive more into that later on. And I guess we'll get stuck into the questions now, starting off with what defines a healthy gut? And this is a two-part question. If someone doesn't have any adverse GIT-related symptoms, let's say like constipation or flatulence, does this mean that they have a healthy gut? Okay. So, yeah, that's a really important question. I mean, one of the reasons why that's uh, an important question to ask and try and answer is because uh, gut symptoms, um, one can look at gut symptoms in two different ways. Um, there's a range of people um, out there in the general population, and you can apply this to other forms of health as well, such as mental health, 
and other forms of physical health, including uh, silent heart disease, for example. Uh, but there are a number of people who are, I suppose, sitting on a, an unhealthy gut, uh, potentially, but they uh, don't have any gut symptoms. On the other side of the spectrum, um, we know that gut symptoms are not necessarily um, a very good guide as to whether what type of pathology or what type of abnormality or disorder the uh, individuals may have. The typical gut symptoms I'm talking about tend to be abdominal pain, abdominal bloating, a change in bowel habit. All those symptoms are, are quite nonspecific. Um, and uh, as a result of that, it's, uh, one needs to sort of take a deeper dive into trying to elucidate how one can manage those symptoms. And over the last 20 or 30 years, there have been increasing numbers of tools which are non-invasive. Uh, in other words, that don't involve, for example, endoscopic procedures such as endoscopy and colonoscopy that can initially give uh, the clinician, i.e. the doctor or the dietitian or the nurse, uh, an idea of whether a person um, has a significant problem um, or whether they need some good dietary advice. Um, and that comes back to both of you and also to this concept of a more holistic approach to people with gut symptoms. So let me just quickly give you one example of what I'm talking about in terms of these non-invasive tools. Um, so typically a person who comes along with, um, let's say, some abdominal pain and they've had a change in their bowel habit, um, you know, one of the first things their primary care physician or GP can do is can, they can do a test called a fecal calprotectin, which is a poo test, which measures inflammation in quite a sensitive way. Uh, that was developed in, 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 in Scandinavia back in 90, as long ago as 1992, but it didn't really get into Australia until about 15 years ago. And it's just beginning to get a Medicare rebate um, as a test, which is important in terms of affordability. So this measures inflammation in the stool and at least initially can separate people with inflammatory causes for their bowel symptoms, such as inflammatory bowel disease, uh, as compared to people with more what we call functional GI disorders, with the classic one being irritable bowel, who have symptoms, but they don't necessarily have inflammation driving those symptoms. So um, if I can have a, a minute or so more, because I've only sort of answered part of your question. Uh, the, other part of, the, the other part of your question talks about, you know, what constitutes good gut health. And again, it's a case of how deep do you want to dive here? Okay. At the moment, unfortunately, we still have relatively blunt instruments to answer that clearly. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is that even fecal cow protectin, it measures inflammation, but it doesn't really yet give us any good idea as to what makes up our, our gut health, which are, uh, to a large extent, the microorganisms that are in our gut. And of course, then you've got the different segments of the gut, uh, you know, starting with the mouth, of course, uh, and then going down through the esophagus, the foregut, uh, the midgut, and then the hindgut, or the, uh, uh, the colon and rectum. And obviously, it's not until you get to the colon and rectum where you have these hundreds of trillions of organisms, uh, which are, to some extent, contributing uh, to the, the gut health environment and whether it's healthy or not. So at a superficial level, a per you can ask a person some questions. And if they answer, uh, you know, I go, I open my bowels twice a day, I have no abdominal pain, I have no rectal bleeding, I, I feel well, you know, that may constitute good gut health. But on the other hand, that person... Um, if they have a microbiome analysis, they, it may be that they have uh, um, a consortium of organisms that may need some work to optimize it. So again, it really depends on how detailed you want to go. Mm -hmm. And uh, that actually branches really nicely into this next question, Graham, which is, you know, what are the factors that influence gut health? And tied in with that, you know, what are the factors that influence the gut microbiota and the gut microbiome? Okay, so... Yeah, another really great question. So 
Um, how much time do we have? Um, <laughs> we so... definitely have enough time. <laughs> Why don't we start off with like what what is your more clinical view of the microbiota and the microbiome? Because we we've talked about it before, but it's it's more so related to the diet disease relationship, not so the sure. medical. Okay, so like. Uh, well, let me just uh, answer both of the questions, both from Tiara and from you. Um, so, you know, let, let's just start off with the, uh, you know, what constitute, you know, what are the factors that influence gut health? Well, obviously, one of them is, you know, where you are geographically. Okay, so you compare yourself to the average person living in the United States, Australia, or the United Kingdom, where on average we're having between 12 and 18 grams of fiber a day. You compare that to someone in Tanzania. Okay, who may be having up to 100 grams of fiber a day because they have so much plant-based material. Okay, now that's obviously going to generate a dramatically different microbiome and microbiota. Okay, um, with the group, the latter group from Tanzania having more, uh, far more likely or likely to have a much greater degree of richness and diversity within their microbiome, and hence, um, uh, you know, a likelihood of that protecting them from the classic Western disorders, which are non-infectious, such as obesity, diabetes, etc. Okay, so that's one factor, where you live. Then there are what we call the social determinants of health. You know, uh, in other words, what neighborhood do you live in? Do you live in a wealthy neighborhood or do you live in a poorer neighborhood? You know, what's your annual income? How many children do you have? And so on. Those factors will definitely influence what you buy, what your diet is made up of, how often you have fast food, and that's going to influence your microbiome in a major way as well. Then there's obviously age. We know that uh, as one ages, the microbiome changes and it reaches a potential peak of diversity and richness um, at a certain age between 30 and 50. And, and then it start, that richness and diversity does slightly diminish with age. But obviously one can try and push back against that by maintaining a really good anti-inflammatory diet. With, which is predominantly plant-based, for example. And there's a lot of interest in that now as people are trying to uh, work out ways in which to age well uh, and not just improve their longevity, but improve their ensuring that they're maintaining that quality of life as they age, okay? And then there are obviously, particularly perhaps more so in Western society, uh, there are, of course, drug effects. And uh, many drugs that are used commonly, um, and I'll name just a couple perhaps, we know now have quite a dramatic effect on the microbiome. What we need to do now from a research and a clinical perspective is determine whether those changes that those drugs are inducing have any long-term consequences in terms of increasing the risk of specific disorders. Perhaps the classic one that I'll use, which um, has, has, has had a lot of publicity over the last four or five years, uh, are what we call the proton pump inhibitors. So these are drugs that um, are, you know, they're great at reducing acid and they have been used extensively for the treatment of gastric ulcers and duodenal ulcers uh, to reduce acid, uh, but in, uh, together with antibiotics to eradicate Helicobacter pylori, which is a, an infection in the stomach that has been shown to contribute to the development of ulcers and gastric cancer. And they're also used perhaps most of all for the treatment of reflux, what we term gastroesophageal reflux disease or GORD. Uh, the, 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 so just to just to clarify for everyone, like that's the the hydrochloric acid in the stomach which breaks down our food. That's right. So we've evolved over thousands of years to have a really cool, amazing organ called the gut, and of course it's highly sophisticated. And one of the important features of the stomach, which is just a segment of the upper gut, is the fact that yes, it produces this acid. 
that contributes the breakdown of the food that's coming from the mouth. It also sort of essentially cleans the, the, the bolus of food that you've swallowed, which is teeming with bacteria and other microorganisms because our mouths are not sterile. Um, and that acid cleans the, uh, the food bolus because, and breaks it down into what we call chyme, which is like an emulsion, which is much easier to, for the small bowel to then digest and absorb nutrients from. Uh, but that cleansing is important because the small bowel works best physiologically. Um, in a sterile or relatively sterile environment, very, very different from the colonic environment where you've got these trillions of organisms working away, breaking down fiber and so on. Okay, um, so, these, so the antacids are, are good when they are appropriately used for specific periods of time, but unfortunately with the passage of time, we've tended to get perhaps a little bit lazy and we've used them inappropriately quite often and for too long a period of time. And that then changes the microbiome uh, of the gut. Um, and we begin to see organisms that typically appear in the mouth, like certain streptococcal species, for some reason being sig found significantly more often uh, in the colon. Uh, and that may not be appropriate and may lead to certain issues. Okay. So because the, the, um, those medications reduce the prevalence of stomach acid, the, the bacteria from that is gathered in the mouth, and I guess gathered with the bolus of food, the hydrochloric acid in the stomach isn't removing those more harmful uh, strains of bacteria. Um, therefore, it's passing through the stomach into the uh, small bowel than large bowel. And that's because of the pH. That's right. I mean, that's right. So the cleansing activity of the stomach's acid uh, is not being allowed to work because it's being reduced by the medication. As I say, these are excellent drugs when used appropriately, like all drugs. Mm -hmm. um, but I think perhaps we need to have a stewardship program, which is gradually being introduced in some hospitals, very much like what we call the antibiotic stewardship program, which is a fantastic initiative. And Australia has led the world on that. And our infectious disease clinical colleagues have done a great job in trying to ensure that antibiotics are used far more appropriately. Similarly, with other drugs like the PPIs, we need to have a better stewardship program around this. And the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners has been doing a great job in trying to ensure that that um, is, is done well, okay? Mm. Um, however, there are examples of where, for example, these streptococcal species, which are typically oral bacteria, are being found in association with certain specific disorders that, um, you know, I study, for example, there was an excellent pediatric study, uh, study in children with ulcerative colitis, where again, this oral streptococcal species came out as a significant finding uh, in patients who develop severe ulcerative colitis in childhood, okay? Um, and so that's just one biomarker potentially of where these organisms are, are in the wrong place at the wrong time, and they potentially may be contributing to these other abnormal diseases developing, okay? Mm. But again, it's not cause and effect as yet. There needs to be a lot more research uh, to see whether this, this is a, a genuine link or is it just an association. Um, okay, so a lot more work needs to be done, obviously. Yeah, so something that we would like your input on is the, the information that we've gathered on the microbiota and the microbiome so far is that we still don't really know the extent as to, to its role. And what is your kind of, I guess, input in terms of what it is and how it functions, what it's used for? And I guess we kind of have slightly touched on the factors that influence it as well. Sure. Yeah. 
Okay, so you know, you know, first principles, and I think you've done some great work with uh, some other guests where you've covered some of some aspects of this in terms of the microbiome and the microbiota. Um, I don't want to uh, go over any uh, sort of ground that you've previously covered, but just for the listeners, in in case they're wondering, microbiome, it's good microbiota. To set yeah, j- just to just to remind people uh, that uh, the microbiota refers to all the microbio microorganisms in a given space. And of course, the microbiota of the gut um, is slightly different from the microbiota that we'll find on our human, on the human skin, in the mouth, um, and other parts of the body. Okay, so each area has got its own microbiota, and that refers to all the microorganisms in that space or uh, in that niche. Uh, and that may they may be they're predominantly bacteria, but they're also archaea, fungi, and viruses, of course. Um, and then you've got the microbiome, which is all the genetic information that those organisms carry. Okay, um, so quickly just running over that, those two definitions quickly again. Um, in terms of their contribution, um, I'll, I'll make some fairly broad statements and we can invest, you know, we can go further if necessary. But, um, uh, you know, what we do know is that these organisms, um, uh, they can, you know, their diversity and their richness uh, seem to play a role in, um, in human health. So uh, those populations that have... Uh, greater levels of richness and diversity of the microbiome. Uh, and these are predominantly experiments done or research done in, 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 bacteria, in the bacterial component, uh, tend, to, tend to be healthier individuals uh, and uh, with fewer inflammatory disorders. Um, and similarly, you get similar data when you compare healthy, in quotes, normal populations. And that's another question. What, how do we define normal now in 2020? Uh, but, you know, when you look at a a healthy normal population based on the fact that they don't have any chronic disease, based on the fact that they have a normal BMI, they have good mental health, uh, and uh, they have a normal physical activity. Um, when you compare those to any individual with a chronic disease, what you find is generally is you find that as you move from normality to any chronic disease, particularly chronic inflammatory disorders, you'll find a significant reduction in richness and diversity in the microbiome. So it's again this concept. Um, that um, and the analogy that's often used, and uh, you know, I've been to a number of these talks where you know the, the presenter puts up a slide of comparing the Amazon rainforest, whatever there is left of it, of course, um, with a uh, with a date palm plantation. Uh, and I, way, I won't say where you find date palm plantations, but it's not far away from Australia. Um, so basically, you know, you go from a, a an enormous rich forest to a mono uh, monoculture essentially. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, And we know that the monoculture will not support the diversity that one will find in a rainforest. Okay. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's constantly coming back to this concept of diversity Uh, to support that diverse microbiome. You need a really diverse, rich diet. And that's where you start to build that link between diet and microbiome and microbiota. It's the diversity, for example, of the vegetable that you eat, the fibers that you consume, the cereals and grains that you're consuming to support that richness in your microbiome. Um, And I suppose the diets that support the richness or increase the richness and diversity of your microbiome are also the diets that are increasingly being seen in the literature, literature which have therapeutic gains for a range of chronic disorders um, that I mentioned earlier, such as the chronic inflammatory disorders and the chronic vascular disorders like coronary artery disease, cardiovascular disease, and even in where one's seeing it appear in the, 
in the uh, in the cancer literature as, as well uh, as having therapeutic gain. Mm. Mm -hmm. I think that is a fantastic analogy of comparing, you know, our, our microbiome to something like an environment, right? And we're always talking about the diversity and biodiversity in an environment compared to our guts. I think that's fantastic. And so, Graham, moving on to this next topic, you know, we hear the words thrown around a lot, IBS and IBD. So we're just hoping that we can, you know, differentiate between what's the difference between IBD or what IBS? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Very, yeah, it's a common question, a very important question because, um, you know, gut symptoms are, are, are common, um, you know, um, as a gastroenterologist who works both in a, in a big public a department at the Royal Brisbane and also works privately. Uh, you know, we have an enormous number of referrals. Just to give your listeners a, an idea of approximately how many referrals we get into the public system a month um, across what we call Metro North. So Metro North is, is North Brisbane um, and it, it, it goes from the Royal Brisbane Hospital up to um, Caboolture Hospital and includes Redcliffe and Prince Charles Hospital. So we're the Metro North hospitals. On average, we get about 2,000 GP referrals a month. Um, wow. uh, um, concerning gut, predominantly gut symptoms in some patients with liver symptoms or liver test abnormalities. And I come back to my point around the fact that these gut symptoms are sometimes, they're difficult to tease apart. Uh, one isn't clear as to whether, it's not straightforward as to whether the patient should be seen in a clinic or should go straight for an endoscopic procedure. But coming back to your question, um, you know, the, the major driver of these symptoms um, fall into the functional gastrointestinal disorders, which is the sort of umbrella term for disorders like irritable bowel syndrome, uh, idiopathic constipation, uh, and another, another term, non-ulcer dyspepsia. Um, it, perhaps your listeners are most familiar with the term irritable bowel syndrome, uh, and typically irritable bowel syndrome, um, a patient will present with symptoms of abdominal discomfort or pain, um, abdominal bloating, um, and some patients will fall into the subgroup of having predominantly looser stools and more frequent stools. Um, so they'll have the more diarrhea predominant IBS, uh, whereas some other patients will have the more constipation predominant uh, irritable bowel syndrome. And then of course, you've got the group uh, who have an alternating pattern. Um, uh, these patients um, you know, have a challenging time because they, have, uh, they also have a, ter um, a, a condition which is called heightened visceral sensitivity. Now, again, to, for your listeners, what does that mean? What it means is that, that uh, many of these individuals tend to pick up their gut, their, 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 their gut seems to be more sensitive to specific stimuli. So they tend to be more sensitive to gas in the gut, in, particularly in the colon. Uh, the gas will distend the large intestinal wall, the colonic wall, and that distension is picked up as bloating and or pain. Um, and it's those patients who come forward for advice um, and uh, for assistance from either a guy, you know, typically a, a GP or a gastroenterologist. But clearly, dietitians have a really important and almost a central role in managing those patients. Those conditions are generally non-inflammatory. And then I come back to the comment I made around this test, fecal calprotectin, which is generally a good test to separate people with those conditions, the non-inflammatory irritable bowel functional GI disorders from people who've got genuine inflammatory driven disorders such as Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Uh, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis are not as common as the functional GI disorders, 
Typically, the prevalence of Crohn's and colitis in Australia is about 1% of the population, whereas people with functional GI disorders uh, are around 15%. So quite a significant difference there. And they're treated, they're managed in different ways, although there is some overlap, particularly around the dietary strategies that one should use. Yeah. I'll just pause there. Yeah. So. Yeah, let's, um, let's uh, dig into the functional GI disorders, so IBS, a little bit more deeply. And I, I have a few questions about that, and then we'll get stuck into the inflammatory bowel disease as well. So sure. I think a common trend as dietitians, we see a lot of people self-diagnosing themselves with, oh, I'm sensitive to lactose, I can't have fructose, I can't have gluten, I can't have dairy. Mm -hmm. What from as a from a more medical perspective, what's your opinion on that? And like when when should someone see a dietitian versus a GP or gastroenterologist? Great, great, yeah, good question. So in people with functional GI disorders, or you know, let's just continue the theme around focusing on irritable bowel syndrome, uh, which in itself is heterogeneous. In other words, there are different types, and I've alluded to the diarrhea predominant, the constipation predominant, and the mixed type. Um, typically. You know, when, when patients come along, obviously, it's a challenging disorder. Um, there's, oft, there's not uncommonly a mental health component where they may benefit from support or some discussion around their mental health as well as one develops a, a relationship with that particular client or patient. Um, particularly, these patients will initially see their GP um, and um, they, they will benefit from an integrated approach. There is no doubt that an integrated approach where ideally you offer the patient support uh, with some uh, gastroenterology support and advice, um, some education. Um, there's clearly a role for a dietitian, and often there's a role for a clinical psychologist. And that integrated approach, I think, is is uh, is is useful. Um, typically, um, when patients come along having tried and tested a few different uh, ideas, I think it's really important to uh, not in any way be judgmental. One has to be very open-minded and understand that this person is made an effort to try and solve their problems before seeking help. Um, so you need to gather information and obviously see for them what has worked and what hasn't worked as a start off, because that will in itself provide you with some very valuable information where you can cross certain things off your list um, and specifically put down factors that may have exacerbated their symptoms, like for example, you know, fructose or other uh, monosaccharides, disaccharides and oligosaccharides. And of course, that's a lead in, of course, into, in the, into FODMAPs uh, and the low FODMAPs diet. So when one looks at dietary strategies for irritable bowel syndrome, um, you know, there is no doubt that the low FODMAPs diet or the low FODMAPs approach um, has been championed by, uh, you know, great people here in Australia. Uh, so Sue Shepard and uh, Peter Gibson were the ones who introduced us to low FODMAPs, I think, over about now about 16 years ago, um, and they did a randomized trial and published their findings. And really, it's gathered a lot of momentum since then. There's an excellent app for it. Um, and I think people find it easy uh, initially to follow. But the advice I'd give is that there is no doubt that if you have got irritable bowel syndrome and you want to benefit most from a low FODMAP start, it's ideally you should try and do this with a qualified accredited dietitian uh, because there is an, a, a sort of intense low FODMAP phase of six to eight weeks, um, which is ideally, again, managed in partnership with a dietitian. Uh, and then gradually after that, there should be an attempt to sort of personalize your diet with reintroduction of certain FODMAPs that you did not react to adversely in that initial six to eight week period. 
Okay, and it's a sort of test and treat principle in some ways. Um, so you develop your own personalized art in collaboration with your dietitian, following that intense low FODMAP phase. A low FODMAP diet in, you know, um, in an ongoing fashion is potentially not the right way to go uh, for, because it's restrictive. It's also quite socially isolating because often you'll be on your own at one end of the table while the rest of the family are digging into a less restricted diet. And that is difficult, you know, um, and we can come back to that perhaps in terms of socialization and how diet plays a role in that. Um, and uh, but secondly, there are data now that demonstrate that that intense low FODMAP phase that does change the microbiome in an adverse way and it becomes less diverse and less rich. And one of the major reasons, of course, is because there's a lot of fibers that you're excluding by following a low FODMAP diet. Mm -hmm. OK, yeah. So does yeah. that, I hope that make, does that answer your question in part? That's just yes, one of the dietary sides. There are a range of other treatments for um, IBS, uh, you know, which uh, we can touch on, but some of them just very briefly can include antispasmodics, and the classic one is peppermint oil. Now, those studies were done many, many years ago, but they still, if you look at them carefully, the number of people needed to treat to get uh, a benefit is, is quite small. It's only, I think, five or six. And the NNT or number needed to treat is a good guide to the effectiveness of a given therapeutic strategy. So they are still certainly useful, particularly peppermint oil. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then, of course, you've got other strategies such as uh, uh, antibiotics, um, such as rifaximin. Rifaximin is a non-absorbable antibiotic. So in other words, it's not absorbed into the body. It uh, It has an effect on organisms in the gut particularly if you've got excessive numbers of organisms in your small bowel, for example, mm -hmm. and, um, and your proximal colon. And uh, there's a lot of data on that um, as a potentially effective uh, treatment, particularly in patients with uh, diarrhea-predominant irritable bowel syndrome. Yeah. So those mm -hmm. are just a few other strategies that one can consider. And Graham, apart from dietary strategies, what do you usually see in your practice in terms of lifestyle and he other health-related strategies that helps to mitigate IBS symptoms? Okay, yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So, you know, like one of the things that I personally, obviously, I tend to sort of reflect on my own lifestyle and see what am I doing right, what am I doing wrong, because I think it's 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 important to, to do this sometimes as a healthcare professional, because it's, I think you have to challenge yourself and say, well, am I following these rules? You know, I'm suggesting to this person that they follow an anti-inflammatory diet what am I doing? You know, I'm suggesting that they take a step back and try and see if they can reduce the amount of commitments they've got in a given working week. What am I doing around that? You know, so um, I think some self-reflection is potentially quite useful here. And the reason I say that is because, you know, many, many times, uh, particularly over the last 20 years or so, if you look at what's happened, uh, we are increasingly in part driven by technology. Uh, we're fitting so many more things into a given moment in time. OK, whether it's an hour in the day or 24 hours in a day or seven day working week, we tend to be doing more and more and more. And I think that can sometimes drive uh, poor health choices and poor lifestyle choices. And I'm guilty of that myself. So um, so I think, you know, if we just take a couple of examples, let's let's go back to diet, because, you know, um, uh, at a big international meeting about two or three years ago, there was a fantastic session on diet and inflammatory bowel disease. And a very famous French gastroenterologist, Jean-Frédéric Colombel, who chaired the session. Uh, at the end of the session, he said, well, let's all get back into the kitchen and start cooking. 
And that was a great way to sign off a great session because he was absolutely spot on. He's French and the French tend to make good food. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and the point he was making was that, yeah, yeah, we need to be cooking more. We need to be in the kitchen. We need to be cooking more, using more fresh produce, more fresh vegetables to produce the sort of diet that will enrich our microbiome and provide us with a good, healthy gut. Um, and what does that talk to? That talks about less takeaway food, less pre-prepared food, mm -hmm. and hence less discretionary items which have all sorts of additives and preservatives that can potentially have a negative impact on our microbiome. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's the diet. And then there are other things that one needs to try and find time for, like exercise. We know that exercise improves our mental health. And, uh, you know, depending upon your age and your level of physical fitness, building in some moderate to strenuous exercise on a weekly basis is very helpful for your, for your mental health and potentially also for your, for your gut, particularly mm -hmm. your gut motility. So those are some examples of where, um, you know, I think that, that those are the sorts of things that I try and discuss with my clients as I'm getting to know them, I, I certainly may not start off in on my first consultation with a new client with some of those deep dives. But if the consultation is going well, uh, one can determine, you know, whether one, you know, just starts to discuss their mental health at their first consultation or perhaps leaves it for a second or third consultation, depending on how the relationship is building. Mm -hmm. mm. And touching on how the gut interconnects with the brain through the enteric nervous system and how, you know, stress can potentially impact our, our gut actions, especially gut motility. Can you touch a little bit on that, about how perhaps managing stress in life, how that can lead to healthier gut habits? Yeah, that's, that's, that's again, a, an area of um, increasing interest, of course, and the brain-gut axis is, uh, there are many colleagues of mine in Australia who have been studying it for a lot longer than myself, uh, including Professor Nick Talley, for example, uh, at the University of Newcastle. Um, but uh, certainly we've become interested in that through my uh, lab and my research group at QIMR. And we've worked with some great neuroscientists, including Luca Kocci, who's a, a group leader at the QIMR, who heads up one of the neuroscience programs there, uh, looking at the relationship between uh, the gut, the human gut microbiome, and uh, levels of anxiety. Um, and that work is at the moment being um, carried out by a PhD student, Caitlin Hall, who's a, a, a dietitian. Um, so basically, a lot of the work is, however, the leading up to all of this has been done in what we call the preclinical -cl pre arena, which is in animal models. And what we find is that, uh, um, you, know, you know, mice that are, uh, are um, given certain tasks which induce anxiety, if that is done over a period of time, when one compares them to mice who do not undergo those anxiety provoking uh, exercises or, uh, um, or drills, uh, one finds that their my microbiome differs, begins to differ significantly. But if you, if you do a fecal microbial transplant um, from one to the other, from the mice who are happy and healthy um, and not anxious, into the mice that have become anxious, you can begin to see behavioral changes in the reverse direction where the mice that are anxious begin to get less anxious, okay? Mm -hmm. um, so we know that there are a number of metabolites, a massive number of metabolites that are being produced by these trillions of organisms in our, in, particularly in our, our large intestine and to a lesser extent in our distal small bowel. And we know that some of those metabolites get into the circulation and potentially have effects um, on the brain, okay? Um, and so it's, it's, it's that 
those concepts and those early preclinical observations in mouse models um, that are driving some of the research now uh, in humans, okay? Mm. Um, and one of the other examples is, of course, some of the work that's been done in more severe forms of, uh, of mental health, uh, such as autism, for example, where there have been some studies using fecal microbial transplant with some, 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 some pl promising early results. Um, at this stage, I'm not aware of a fully published randomized trial as yet, but certainly there have been some open studies uh, that have been done with fe fecal microbial transplantation, uh, demonstrating some improvements in some aspects of behavior in people who, who have autism, uh, mm -hmm. as an example of er early human work. Okay. Um, I suppose one of the things is that, you know, fecal microbial transplant is, um, is, is a bit clunky. Um, it, it reached its peak of interest probably a couple of years ago. Um, but increasingly, I think one is trying to move towards a more um, acceptable, more easy to deliver mechanism by which we can, you know, select those microorganisms that are really beneficial, usually in groups or what we call consortia, because we know that organisms seem to have their greatest benefit, just like you probably find in a rainforest, like we were describing earlier, when you find a bunch of them who work really well together, again, uh, as a you know as opposed to individual organisms okay yeah. those are then put into capsules and there are some you know some major companies now that are doing this uh, so that that can be delivered in a more acceptable way to a larger population as opposed to fecal microbial transplantation which as i said tends to be more practically challenging and and clunky mm -hmm. and uh, just an interesting uh, thing that i just thought of is that you know, usually when people describe that they're having irregular bowel habits, whether that be, you know, constipation or very regular bowel movements like diarrhea, uh, people usually talk about fiber. But I'm just interested, does someone's actual microbiome, would that actually influence the motility of their gut? So the, regardless of the amount of fiber that they're actually consuming, uh, the actual microbes in there, does that influence how regularly they will actually go to the bathroom and pass a bowel movement? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. It's quite, um, it's a sort of tricky question, I suppose, in the sense that um, I think, you know, we're only beginning to try and look at, uh, and again, there are experts, I, I'm sure, within Australia who could probably give you a more educated answer um, but my understanding at the moment is that we're really still at the infancy of trying to see um, which groups of organisms, which consortia of organisms, whether they be bacteria, fungi or viruses or, or a mixture of all of those, influence our gut motility. OK, mm. and uh, let me just mention some of the factors that that may influence motility, because, you know, motility or sometimes I refer to it as transit time. Is, is a really important issue, which I think is sometimes um, sort of not missed, but perhaps it's not given adequate attention, is because, um, and certainly since we've developed integrated gut health, we've certainly begun to focus on transit time as one of our benchmarks in terms of assessing a patient who's got a disordered gut uh, series of symptoms, um, just to see whether they have genuinely got delayed transit. In other words, they're just not, their stool is just not passing through as quickly as it should, because that generally does fit, if that's the case, with the symptoms that they often present with, which is things like bloating uh, and, and, and irregular bowel habit and sometimes abdominal pain. Um, so um, what we do know is that 
when you take a stool sample, and this has been based on a fantastic study by called the Flemish Gut Study, which was driven by uh, a group in uh, in Belgium, read by a guy called Jeroen Reis, R-A-E-S, um, and they studied a, a large population of people from the Flemish population in Belgium, uh, looking at stool samples, and the variable that they found uh, that affected the microbiome population that they that they got out of a stool specimen was the transit time. Mm. That the transit time may more than anything else influenced um, what microbiome signature you got. You know, uh, like the sort of thing you can get done commercially on your stool sample. So that's important because typically we don't do that. We just send off the stool sample. We don't do a transit time to see whether our transit time fits into the normal range. Is it faster? Is it slower? But what we don't know at the moment, or I think the studies, if they're, they're out there, are in their infancy, is that are there particular bacteria, which is your question that you're asking, that will promote a faster transit time compared to others? One of the things that does influence transit time, though, is inflammation. And, and, and there you begin to see this, this, the, the crossover with developing inflammatory bowel disease, because what we do know that is that if you your microbiome does change and becomes less diverse and less rich. And particularly if there are specific organisms that have overabundance compared to a healthy group of individuals. The classic one, for example, associated with Crohn's disease are the proteobacteria. Then you will, that they seem to be associated with, I'm not saying that they necessarily drive, but they are associated with much higher levels of gut inflammation. And that then causes a faster transit time because the inflammation is driving that that faster transit time, eventually resulting in diarrhea, sometimes mm-hmm. bloody diarrhea. So we do know things at the extreme end of the scale where you've got inflammatory bowel disease and the fact that these organisms, by driving inflammation, change transit time. Where we need more research is in that very large group of people in the middle who vary between slightly slow transit through to normal transit to slightly faster transit, and what are the organisms in those individuals, and how can we study them to see whether they are in part driving that transit time or not? You know, but but there are a lot of other factors in transit, and one of the big ones that we've identified, which is not new, but it's I suppose at a clinical level it's really important, is, is fluid intake. Mm. The thing that everyone forgets about, because I suppose we're we tend to be focused on diet um, is your fluid intake. And, you know, we promote good fluid intake all the time. And one of the best proponents of that is our dietitian at Integrated Gut Health, Abby Marsh. Um, and it commonly, she has found, particularly perhaps more so in young men, um, is that the fluid intake is poor um, and water is, is minimal, particularly during the day. And there tends to be uh, a, a, a movement more towards high energy drinks such as, um, you know, well, I won't mention the brands, but you know what I'm talking mm. about. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So I think this is a, I wanted to ask another question, but in the sake of time, we'll move on to IBD and let's just start with defining. I think some people might be a bit confused about the inflammation component of IBD and what that actually means. Right. Okay. So, look, I think it's a shame that the acronyms are so similar, um, and I suppose I've moved towards using the actual specific terms for the two major forms of inflammatory bowel disease to get away from this IBD, IBS confusion. Um, so, you know, irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, uh, that's a non-inflammatory group of disorders. Um, 
some researchers say that there is low level of information in some of those patients that may be the case but it's on a it's 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 a, it's on a different scale compared to people with genuine inflammatory bowel disease or IBD so the two major forms of inflammatory bowel disease are Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis and they, there are some significant differences between those two um, if we take the Australian population Classically, Crohn's disease is predominantly a disorder of the small intestine and one particular segment of the small intestine known as the ileum or the terminal ileum. That's the last part of the highly specialized small bowel before the small bowel joins the colon at the ileocecal valve. Um, now, the Crohn's disease is a chronic inflammatory disorder which affects the bowel wall with severe inflammation. The bowel wall becomes thickened and not uncommonly those patients will develop a narrowing at that in that segment and sometimes eventually they can, they can have a bowel obstruction requiring surgery. So that's the classic form of Crohn's disease in the Caucasian population, for example, here in Australia. Uh, ulcerative colitis, on the other hand, is a disorder of the colon, um, and usually it starts in the rectum, and then it, it spreads up the colon uh, uh, towards the, uh, the, uh, the uh, more proximal part of the colon known as the cecum to a variable extent. So some people may have 20 centimeters of colon involved. Some people may have the whole of their colon involved. The inflammation is not as deep as in Crohn's disease. So typically those patients with ulcerative colitis don't form the narrowings or the strictures, um, but they suffer from more, an increase in their stool frequency and they suffer from rectal bleeding. Those are the two classical symptoms. Pain is not as much of a feature as compared to Crohn's disease. One of the interesting things about these two disorders that was picked up in the 1980s was that smoking has an effect on the two diseases, but in a different way. And uh, smoking increases your risk of developing Crohn's disease and makes the disease more severe. But that is driven by the association between smoking and the small bowel, okay? So smoking uh, is, affects the small bowel in a very negative way. And we think one of the, there was some research done by one of my previous PhD students, who's now a colleague of mine at the Royal Brisbane, Georgia Hume, which demonstrated that um, smoking is probably having this negative effect in, in the terms of development of Crohn's disease by narrowing the blood vessels that supply the gut wall in Crohn's disease. And by damaging those blood vessels, you reduce the blood supply. And essentially, that part of the, the small bowel becomes uh, ischemic, you know, meaning that the blood supply is significantly compromised and contributes to inflammation. Um, on the other hand, smoking seems to improve um, aspects of the colon um, and uh, increases mucin production, mucus production, and, 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 but we're not entirely sure what other, why in certain circumstances nicotine or smoking can improve inflammation in the colon. Having said all of that, you know, the clear message for me is absolutely do not smoke in this situation at all, because uh, some people who stop smoking develop ulcerative colitis and they occasionally use a cigarette smoking to improve their symptoms. Uh, but, you know, the message is always the case is that smoking has so many other severe harmful effects that there are other ways that we can control the disease uh, and smoking should be not not be used as a form of therapy at all. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't. That's interesting that it has some positive effects, though. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess other, in terms of treatment for both of those um, IBD classifications, is, mm -hmm. it, is it almost purely medical at this stage? 
Uh, no, increasingly that's changing, and I suppose that's uh, you know that's uh, an area of great interest to us, uh, both from a research perspective um, and also from a clinical perspective at Integrated Gut Health. Uh, I think that increasingly one is seeing that diet is coming to the fore uh, in the management of inflammatory bowel disease, and uh, there are a number of my patients and clients, you know, both recent and historical, um, who I've known for a number of years, who have done incredibly well by really pushing their diet to, a optimi uh, to an optimized anti-inflammatory diet uh, with assistance from myself and from dietitians, particularly most recently, uh, Abby Marsh. Um, so um, what's the evidence? Well, um, you know, there are a number of dietary studies that are at the moment registered on clinicaltrials.gov, which is a big clinical trials website that you, can, that you can get into through Google to see what's happening around the world. Included in that is a new study that we are doing, which is being led by Abby Marsh, which is a randomized clinical trial of an anti-inflammatory diet called the MAID study um, in patients with mild to moderately active ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, where they are either randomized to an anti-inflammatory diet, where their major meals are provided for a period of eight weeks, or randomized to whatever standard diet they normally have. Uh, they're given a lot of support and education throughout that period. Um, so that's one of several diets that are currently underway around the world. I know that there are several diets that have already been published. Um, and there's also an excellent uh, study uh, which has been done uh, using data that was uh, gathered over many years from a big, actually it was a cancer study done in Europe, but they, they, they collected so much information across about 200,000 people in Europe, just randomly selected people. And what they found from analyzing the dietary data that they collected in that study was that people who followed essentially a Mediterranean or anti-inflammatory diet had a significantly lower risk of developing inflammatory bowel disease, okay? So that's sort of kind of indirect uh, population-based evidence uh, supporting an anti-inflammatory or, or Mediterranean diet with respect to inflammatory bowel disease development. Um, so diet is certainly a very important and increasingly important mechanism by which to complement the medical therapies that we um, have used for a number of years. And, and there are some excellent therapies for inflammatory bowel disease. Again, I won't go into details, but there's typically a, a structured mechanism or way in which to approach uh, therapy in inflammatory bowel disease, starting with standing at, standard anti-inflammatory therapy in ulcerative colitis, uh, using limited amounts of steroids for short periods of time. And then, of course, more recently, we've had a range of bio, what we call biologic drugs um, that are used, use monoclonal antibody technology where a particular molecule is targeted uh, to reduce the inflammation either in the small bowel or the colon uh, in patients with these disorders. And they are very safe and very effective, um, and uh, they are managed by usually a specialist team in a, in a hospital or in a, in a practice, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. but, but, but to, to summarize all of that quickly, you know, the, 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 the opportunities now are significantly greater than even five years ago. And I personally am delighted to see that diet is coming to the fore as a treatment strategy to complement what uh, clinicians are already doing. Um, and there's a very important role for dietitians now in, in, in that space, as there should be. Yep. I, it honestly makes me so happy to hear that because even going through our master's degree two years ago and uh, working as a student dietitian with you know some patients who are suffering from IBD, we were taught at that point that diet was not the cause and it was not the cure for IBD. Like there was no mention that it 
anything of an anti-inflammatory diet, you know, could help alleviate some of these symptoms. So, so glad that in, in the last two years, more research is emerging and it just makes sense that diet certainly would play a role, right? Because what we eat is going through our gut. So it would have to have some sort of influence over time. Yeah. If I can just have one minute to respond to that, um, because there is a, an important clinical message here, uh, which Abby and I have uh, really been trying to help focus on and help both our colleagues and our patients. Um, and uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, we are what we eat, you know, and I know mm -hmm. that's, co that's a term that's commonly used. So let's talk about that because, um, you know, a number of people, for example, who present with uh, active ulcerative colitis, okay, so that's the type of, that's the inflammatory bowel disease that um, uh, affects the colon, often the rectum, presents with bleeding and increased stool frequency. And often when people would present with a flare of their ulcerative colitis, um, they are, particularly if they're admitted to a hospital, um, they're put onto a low fiber diet. And Abby and I are scratching our heads and saying, Hang on a sec, um, you know, because a significant percentage of those patients, one of the first things you do when you assess that patient after you've examined them, you've done some blood tests, you do a plain abdominal x-ray, okay? And what that commonly shows, even the people with more, slightly more severe colitis, uh, is that they will have what we call fecal loading. That means an excessive amount of fecal material in their right colon on the right-hand side. And not uncommonly, they're a little bit tender there because... It's kind of trapped. And in part, that's because the inflammation is so severe on the left-hand side, it's almost putting a break on fecal material coming through, okay? To then be put on a low-fiber diet is counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. Also, because we know that fiber is such a critical component to ensuring that you try and reverse that loss of diversity and richness that many of those people already have developed, in part driving the development of their inflammatory bowel disease. So one has to be careful here, and ideally one should be speaking to, um, you know, a, a more specialized dietitian who is comfortable with seeing clients like that or patients like that and reassuring them and say, yes, you can have some fiber. You don't have to be on a low-fiber diet, okay, yeah. to try and assist them in that situation. Now, if you've got a patient with severe colitis affecting the entire colon, then that's a little bit different. And again, that's where the specialist dietitian comes into play where for a short period, of, you may have them on a high energy, clear fluid diet. Um, but even then, you know, small amounts of soluble fiber, for example, are, are very reasonable. And we, we, we really are coming into the realm of personalized dietary therapy mm -hmm. for these very specific situations to optimize a person's care, rather than having this rather simplistic, broad-based approach, which is not going to work for many clients, okay? So my yeah. message there is, we need to be more personalized in our dietary approach in these very specific situations, just with, like we are when we're applying their medical uh, treatment, which mm -hmm. is highly specialized. Well, so their diet needs to be highly specialized in some situations as well. Yeah, it, it makes me so happy to hear you say that, you know, that we can't give those blanket approaches. And when someone is having a flare up, we can't just blanket approach, you know, a low fiber diet to uh, try to alleviate that pain. So, mm. but yeah, I think we are, Graham, we definitely want to be respectful of your time. So thank you so much for joining us today. And, you know, we'll definitely have to get you back on the show in the future because there's, I think we've only just skimmed the surface here today. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I think next time we can maybe get you on with Abby, who's the, the dietitian that you work with and we can have a 
combined podcast together, maybe even get in some listener questions after they listen to this one and see your expertise. I think it's useful to, because obviously we're more, we deal more in the health and fitness scene, not so the, the clinical scene that you and a lot of that you are experienced with. And a lot of the listeners, as you said, 15% of the Australian population has some sort of gut disturbances, um, functional gut issues. Um, so pretty much everyone would probably know someone with a gut issue. It's incredibly common. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I so, agree. I think it's, um, it's common. And as I said before, it's important to listen to people, respect what they've tried and tested, see what works for them before you start to move on to new territory and provide them with some education. Try and avoid being uh, dismissive. Yeah. Yeah. And Graham, one question that we always finish the podcast on, we always ask all our interviewees is one interesting thing that you learned this week. So what's one interesting thing that you've learned? Uh, well, I suppose the, the, one of the most interesting things I learned uh, was from a paper that I actually presented at a journal club, um, perhaps slightly longer than a week ago, because I was on, on holiday last week, uh, uh, which was, again, coming back to this concept of uh, uh, you know, the impact of commonly used drugs in, uh, in, uh, on the microbiome. And it's a nice study, uh, which um, I can send you guys the PDF. So if, if your listeners, any of your listeners want to follow it up, it's a study from a really great group uh, in Holland, in Grun the University of Groningen. And basically, they looked at a range of different commonly used drugs in three separate populations of people with IBS, people with inflammatory bowel disease, and people with no gut disorders at all, and looked at the impact of those drugs on, uh, on, uh, on their microbiome and potentially their future health. And, uh, you know, it's the usual suspects, I suppose. So groups of drugs like that we commonly use, such as proton pump inhibitors, but also, interestingly, drugs that control glucose, like metformin, which you two may uh -huh. have come across, which is very commonly used in type 2 diabetes. Uh, previously, that's been shown to have beneficial effects on the microbiome. This study showed that it had both positive and negative effects. Uh, and then other commonly used drugs like vitamin D, for example, calcium, and, um, and uh, drugs that control high blood pressure, uh, like uh, a group of drugs called the sartans, like ibisartan, candesartan, mm -hmm. telmosartan. Um, so I think, um, I think that uh, this illustrates the importance, I think, increasingly um, as our science grows, uh, that you know, clinicians really have to keep track of these developments. So when they're, when they're discussing this, the commencement of a therapy with a patient, they give them a slightly broader perspective because many patients will come to them with some knowledge yeah. uh, and say, you know, what's the downside of taking this for the next eight weeks? Do you know what I mean? Mm. What's the downside of taking this antibiotic or this, uh, this other drug, you know? And um, so I think that um, trying to keep up uh, with the literature in some way is, uh, is very valuable, I think, for, for all of us, yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. And we would love to, if you could send us that link, we'll definitely put it in the show notes below. And Graham, before we head off, if anyone wants to get in touch, where can they find you? So I actually, uh, I was pleased to see uh, that um, we've, uh, we've been sort of working on the website with, uh, with, a, with, a, with a, a professional team. And uh, uh, your listeners should be able to find uh, myself and my team, who are all amazing people, um, just by Googling Integrated Gut Health now or www.integratedguthealth.com. And, um, and they can also visit the QRMR Berghofer Inst Institute website as well if they wanted to find out a little bit more about the Gut Health Research Group. Mm -hmm. Okay? Yeah. And uh, if they, 
I don't know if the listeners want to DM us, they can do that as well, and we can sure. refer them on to you. So, and uh, yeah, uh, thank you again for coming on. I'm sure everyone learned a lot, and I don't doubt that you'll be on again. And if everyone, if, if, if you guys enjoyed listening to the episode, please remember to repost it onto your Instagram stories. Tag myself, tag Tierra, tag TBD, and we'll see you guys next week. Thank you.